0: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a
1: show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. We are delighted to say that our fantastic guest today is a former Chancellor of the Exchequer under the Margaret Thatcher government, Lord Nigel Lawson. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you. Uh, It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, As I mentioned, you were responsible for running this country's economy for over six years, I believe. Uh, in the 80s, uh, ha- and you're now well into your ninth decade on this planet. Have you seen anything like the sort of economic disaster that this country is facing at the moment in your time?
2: No, I haven't. It is appalling, uh, and uh, I am afraid that the way we're heading uh, is to a disaster. mm
1: and when, when, you, when you talk about the direction we're heading, just for ordinary people who watch the show who may not be economists or experts in this who don't have your level of expertise, can you just elaborate on what you see coming down the line for, for this country? Well, the
2: most serious thing I see coming down the line is nothing to do with this pandemic, nothing to do with the coronavirus. I think that although this lockdown Uh, has almost certainly done more harm than good. Uh, There's clearly a very good likelihood that at least one of the vaccines they come up with, and I hope the others as well, but at least one of them uh, will work and that we will escape from this pandemic and its consequences. The problem is the completely gratuitous disaster which uh, I'm afraid to say, Boris Johnson, who I like, uh, but has uh, uh, set out the so-called Green Industrial Revolution, this 10-point plan. This is the biggest uh, disaster, economic disaster, uh, if they go through this, and he seems determined to do so, that has happened in my lifetime which is quite a long lifetime, as you
1: pointed out. <laughs> I was trying to emphasise your level of experience rather than to say anything about how old you are. That was, that was the goal. Uh, but you mentioned this green strategy. A lot of people will think that, the, you know, the climate change is an issue that we need to tackle. Uh, some people say this is an opportunity to do that. What is your concern with that economic strategy? Well, the strategy,
2: incidentally, uh, I think that climate change is not uh, a threat. It's happening very gently at a fraction of a degree per decade, which is something we can perfectly well live with. But the the problem is that this, this so-called strategy, the pre Industrial Revolution, is to move away from cheap, uh, affordable at reliable energy to extremely costly and unreliable energy and to do so at an inordinate cost. All the experts, for example, Professor Michael Kelly and everybody else who knows about this sort of And I know a little bit about energy because before I became Chancellor, I was Secretary of State for energy. So it's mm-hmm. not a new field but the the cost of moving from cheap and reliable energy to high, very expensive and unreliable energy is massive and it's crazy and i really worry i've never worried so much about the future path of the of the british economy and therefore of this country
0: uh, more than i do now Nigel, Lord Lawson, you're talking about this energy. Specifically, what do we mean? Is it wind? Is it uh, solar panels? What type of energy resources are we talking about here? Well, the biggest
2: thing that uh, uh, Johnson wants to move to is wind, which is hugely expensive and very unreliable. The wind people will tell you that the cost although they're high now, they're coming down that is totally untrue they are, if anything, going up so it is sort of a burden for the British people of their energy costs, the cost for travel, the cost for heating their home, every other cost involved in energy, is going to increase really substantially hugely, unless the he has the sense to oh, to
0: abandon this crazy plan, and Lord Lawson, look again. I'm an absolute layman. I, I don't know the fir- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't know the first thing about energy and all the rest of it. But my question is: Why, at a time of a global crisis, the pandemic, when our economy looks ever more unstable, are we embarking on <laughs> renewable energies? That's a very good question.
2: Uh, A very good question. I think that uh, it's partly um, because this has become, this greenery has become something of a new religion at a time when Christianity and other religions are less and less uh, in people's minds and hearts and uh, thinking. Uh, But also I think it is a designed to take our minds off the pandemic.
1: But it's crazy. Mm. Lord Lawson, you were Chancellor of the Exchequer, as I mentioned. If a Conservative Prime Minister, I'm sure the one you served under wouldn't have done this, but if a Conservative Prime Minister had walked into your office and said, uh, Chancellor, what we need to do at this time when we're facing the worst economic situation for 300 years is to embark on this. What would your words have been to that Prime Minister? I would be
2: flabbergasted. Certainly Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have print of anything so stupid. Uh, and uh, I, I'm afraid that I would do my best to dissuade the Prime Minister to say that, and if not, I would leave the government.
1: Mm. Mm. It's an interesting thing also that it's a conservative government that's doing this. I mean, of all the different parties that we have, you would have thought they might have been the least likely to have done this, would you not? I would have thought that.
2: Uh, It is crazy. Uh, I think you have to see it uh, to a certain extent in the psychology of Boris Johnson, who loves
0: big projects, irrespective of the cost. And Lord Lawson, I'm looking at this conservative government and this government, to me, doesn't seem particularly conservative and it doesn't seem very right of centre on economics. Do you think this is a conservative government? Well, it is a conservative
2: government, but uh, one has to see things as they are and assess this project, the Green Industrial Revolution. And it is... Absolutely mad. I mean, I. Of course, ironically, although it's mad, the Labour opposition is supporting it, as you know.
0: Mm. So, it, because it seems to me that in this country, we don't really have any credible opposition. If you look at, for instance, the issue of lockdown, the gov- the, the Labour government wants us locking down even harder, even faster. All the rest of it, now you're talking about this Green Revolution, which is going to cost the taxpayer even more, which is going to make our energy source more unstable. Again, the Labour government are not putting any form of uh, opposition their way. So, quite frankly, does it, it does seem we're in a form of political crisis now.
2: Well, certainly you're right. And that's why I said a few moments ago that I've never been more depressed about the future for this country, uh, I mean, I hope that uh, the government might come to its senses and abandon this plan. But it
1: is absolutely a commitment that they've made so far. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a suicidal commitment. And setting that to one side, Lord Lawson, I understand it's an important issue. Of course, it is. But if we just rise above it a little bit and look at the bigger picture of the economy. From your vantage point what do you see more broadly in terms of the the cost of the lockdown the cost of of the pandemic which has been great as well not only the response to it, but the pandemic itself it's obviously taken lives it's it's forced us to uh reorganize the the national health services forced us to focus uh resources in a different way uh, and what do you see for the country you you know setting the green agenda aside
2: uh, sorry to be so gloomy, but the, there are a number of things about the economy at this certain time, uh, before the Green Industrial Revolution uh, has got going, as you know, I hope it never will, but uh, the, Boris Johnson seems determined to do it. But the the project of the moment, the situation at the moment, with this massive deficit, budget deficit, with a huge, massive uh, debt uh, burden of the country, uh, that in itself is quite alarming. It's not necessary to have a debt seat. I mean, I was able to bring the country around, turn the country around from a... uh, Deficit, not as big as this one now, but pretty big, to a balance sponge and indeed a very small surplus, and it's
1: perfectly possible to do it. Uh, but at the moment, everything is going in the wrong direction. And how how would you do it now? How would you begin to tackle the deficit and the, the massive mounting debt that we've incurred? And let's be clear, it's not just something that's happened in the last eight months. We've been building up this debt and expanding our deficit, which contributes to it, for for, for decades now.
2: Well, you have to do it, obviously, on both sides of the balance sheet. You have to cut back on uh, government spending, um, Mm. which to a certain extent, in his latest statement, uh, Rishi Sunak, the present chancellor has uh, started to do. And you also have to do a bit on however unpalatable, on the side of raising taxation.
0: And how severe do you... Because we had austerity. We had austerity in 2008 and it lasted however long it was, I think almost 10 years. Do you see us going into a second austerity now?
2: We might call it that. Um, but yes, that's what needs to be
0: done. Yeah. And But how severe do you think these austerity measures are, are going to be? Are they going to be deeper and... Harder than they were in 2008?
2: Well, they we, we said they certainly need to be as uh, hard. Um, uh, even now, because of the consequences of the pandemic, uh, they'll certainly have to be like that. And after all, we survived that. It wasn't a disaster. We survived that period of austerity. Uh, the world didn't come to an end.
1: Mm. But I uh, certainly a lot of people would argue uh, that it was painful for many many people. It, it some people would say it led to a rise in crime due to a reduction in the number of police. Officers. We can go down the list. You know, obviously all of that can be can be debated. Um, but I I don't know that, uh, and this is less of a question, more of a statement. Really, I don't know that many people recognized at a time when furlough was introduced, when self-employment grants were introduced, when the lockdowns were introduced, the impact it would have on their lives. And I wonder, frankly, if that had been explained to them, whether we'd seen the same level of enthusiasm for the lockdowns that we've had.
2: Well, no, the enthusiasm for the lockdown, I think, is is misguided. I think the evidence is accumulating uh, uh, that the... Harm done by the lockdown is greater than any good. Uh, You have to make tough choices, and you never find in in government that everything you do can be all good and no harm. It's always a mixture, but you hope that what you do, the good outweighs the harm. I don't think the lockdown has. I said this is not the main concern because I think it is likely that uh, once the vaccination, I hope it happens straight away, at least once the vaccination is cleared as being safe and totally effective, that uh, the lockdown uh, will come to an end. Uh, The problem uh, for the economy doesn't go just like that. The body greatly diminishes See, one of the problems is that the uh, scientific advisors who uh, advise the government on the response to uh, the pandemic uh, have openly said that they don't take the economic consequences into account. They say they've said it to a House of Commons committee. Uh, that's a matter for the Treasury. But uh, Boris Johnson has wanted to cover for everything. So he thinks that if he can say, well, this is what my scientific advisors recommend, then that gives him a political cover that he would like. Nice. <laughs> there, there are distinguished scientists like uh, Professor De Gupta of no. Oxford, who has also said she's a scientist, a distinguished scientist, there's a lot of doing more harm than good.
1: Francis, do you like exploring your Englishness? Every single Friday night, mate. Really? What do you do? Well, you
0: read a book, do you? I do, actually. It's called Exploring Englishness,
1: and it's a book written by a trigonometry fan called Vivian Endicott. And you know it's good, because this is the first book I've ever seen him reading. Joking aside, as you know, I am now a British citizen. But I'll still always think of myself as Russian for tax purposes. Having said that, if my children grow up in this country, having been born here and think of themselves as still Russian, I'd be disappointed. I'd feel like it was a failure on my part to educate them to be part of this country. And that is the wonderful thing about this book, is it allows you to explore details of English culture, to do activities, to go on quests on it. So the nerd in me really enjoyed that The thing that I loved about Exploring
0: Englishness was a way that it avoided angry identity politics and instead focused on what makes this country great. The beautiful landscapes, the wonderful art, the exquisite
1: cuisine. He means Greg's. Exploring Englishness was a finalist at the Dorchester Literary Festival this year and it makes for a great Christmas gift.
0: The book is 20
1: pound and available directly from the publisher, Ginger Pop Publishing. Go to www.gingerpoppublishing.co.uk and order your copy in time for Christmas. Just be aware, the only ship to UK addresses. Well, that's certainly the view that we, we've we come to on, on this show, talking to different doctors and experts in the field. Uh, but from, you know, you mentioned economics. Is it not the job of the government to recognize that An economic impact that leads to an economic downturn that leads to people being unemployed uh, also has consequences on people's well-being, on the number of people who die, on the number of people who sadly commit suicide. All of those things surely must be taken into account when these political decisions are being made.
2: Well, they should be. I mean, you're quite right that the economic uh, cost of the policy uh, which uh, is very considerable uh, includes obviously uh, people losing their jobs, people losing their livelihoods, and a lot of uh, mental uh, harm. So it's not you know, it's not just some abstract or uh, abstract thing. It is it has a mental uh, health cost uh, as well as the
0: Economic cost. They go together. And Lord Lawson, what do you think? No, it's absolutely fine. Lord Lawson, what do you think is going to be the economic picture for us when we finally emerge out of lockdown? Do you think it's going to be very similar to a 1930s style scenario with a great depression, or dare I say, could it possibly be even worse? Yeah,
2: I I don't know whether it'll be. Worse. If we, if uh, the government abandons this appalling, disastrous proposal for the Green Industrial Revolution, uh, then it might not be worse than the 30s. It'll be very bad, uh, but the 30s were very bad too. It'll only be worse than the 30s if he goes down this uh, Green Industrial Revolution route.
1: Mm. Mm. Uh, You mentioned uh, Boris Johnson and you said that you like him as a person, but you have concerns about some of his policies. Uh, There was a broader question we wanted to ask you because uh, the government you were part of with Margaret Thatcher at at its helm uh, is a government that will be hated by many people who watch the show and it will be loved by many people who watch the show. But neither the people who hated that government nor the people who loved it could possibly deny that it was a government made up of the big beasts of politics. Margaret Thatcher, yourself and dozens of others and people, frankly, on opposite benches who were equally significant political figures uh, in this country at the time. Do you feel that we have uh, the same calibre of politician as we did in your time in government?
2: Well, it's difficult for me to be objective, obviously. But I think it was a good... Uh, era, for the quality of uh, the politicians, the good ministers, and uh, but there you go. I mean, that always fluctuates, doesn't it?
0: It does, but surely you look at the calibre of politicians being produced by both ends of the spectrum, and they both appear to be weak, lacking in character, vigour, etc., etc. Do you not find...?
2: Well, you said that. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't argue with you. But the the, um, the thing also is that uh, Margaret Thatcher was a very fine leader, which helped a great deal. But not just that. And uh, you were saying, I think, or... Oh, maybe Constantine was, that people loved her, but they also hated her. Clearly, mm-hmm. uh, until right at the end, anyway, um, the majority of the people supported her. I mean, she wouldn't have won three general elections on the trot if the people as a whole had not approved of her and her government. Mm.
1: No, of course. Um, my point was uh, slightly different. Um, I, what I was saying was even people who hated her, who I, I absolutely accept your point, were in the minority, none of them would have questioned the calibre of politician that she was. Uh, whereas today, I think, there, are, frankly, there are politicians who I like and agree with whose calibre leaves a lot to be desired because they seem to be the best of what's on offer. Uh and that seems to, to be a concern to many people, that uh, we don't have the big beast of politics anymore and the conviction politicians are very few and far between. Well, that
2: may be so. But there are some individuals who uh, are uh, able. Uh, the present chancellor although well, he's very young. I mm. think is very able indeed.
0: Mm. And what have you thought of Boris Johnson's leadership? I mean, he has come to... Power had a time of national crisis, the, one of the biggest challenges this country certainly has faced, certainly since the Second World War. How have you perceived his leadership to be?: He's
2: very likable, <laughs> uh, and people like uh, means that people like him. And that's how he managed to win a large majority in the last election. Some people call it charisma. Uh, mm. In fact, that's a fancy name for being likeable. Mm. Uh, and uh, But he also is a sucker for big projects. Uh, uh, you remember this ridiculous bridge over the Thames he wanted mm. to build when he was mayor of London. And uh, any big project uh, he is a sucker for. And uh, the problem now is that he's come up with the granddaddy of all big projects, and the fact that it is totally uneconomic. And it's uneconomic not in the sense that the cost to the taxpayer be enormous, but the cost to any everybody's electricity bills, even if it can be done incidentally, which is not clear, the cost of everybody's electricity the their heating wheels, their cars and so on, uh, will be completely unaffordable. And that's why no other country in the world is doing it. it? Mm.
0: So, so it does, does beg the question, then, why is he doing it? Is it purely ego? Is it because he, he genuinely believes in this project? What, why do you think the reasons are? Well, you have to ask him. Uh, But uh,
2: why do I think? Uh, I think he gets uh, swept away by the idea of this, as the French call them, grand projet. And he doesn't bother about the cost or the economics or anything like that. So it is very important that his colleagues talk him out of this before... He feels that he's uh, got in too deep and can't uh, ex- extricate himself. That, uh, to take a small or smaller example of this, is HS two, which is mm-hmm. not his uh, project, but uh, it is a, a big project and it is immensely costly. Not as big as the green industrial revolution and the costs. Uh, get higher and, higher and higher each time they're revised. And there's no economic case for HS2 at all. But the feeling is too often that uh, once you have already invested a lot of money in a project, you have, can't stop it, otherwise the money is wasted. That is foolish in the extreme. Uh, once you've taken a wrong decision, then you need to stop it. Uh, You don't go on just because you took the wrong decision in the past, recent past, and have
1: spent a lot of money on
2: it. You you, you stop digging.
1: And and you've talked, uh, just changing tack slightly, you've talked about uh, Boris Johnson's penchant for grand projects. Uh, There was one you might call grand project, uh, which was the centrepiece of his election in 2019, uh, which was of course of course getting Brexit done. Uh, what is your view of where we are now with Brexit? Because frankly, uh, Francis insisted that we talk about it with you, whereas I am sort of I think more <laughs> where most of the public are at the moment, where it's been it's become a third rate issue in many people's minds. Although of course it is very important. Um, where are we with Brexit, and what do you see happening with that? Are we heading towards No Deal? I've always thought
2: uh, that no deal would be the outcome. Uh, there is no way that um, uh, the European Union uh, want to see uh, us have anything that is remotely like a good deal. Uh, and that's not because they're anti British, it's because there is a lot of, I uh, lived in European Union for nearly 20 years and it is not uh, because they want to uh, do down Britain as such it is that there is a lot of disaffection with the European Union in many parts of the European Union and they feel that if we uh, get out and thrive uh, that will be an example to other countries who might do the same, and thing might collapse, so uh, they want to make sure that there's no way we can come out of it in a way that uh, we, certainly I, would find acceptable. Uh, the, and there's nothing wrong with no deal, uh, no deal means that we trade on World Trade Organization, WTO terms. Uh, which is perfectly acceptable, and that is how we do most of our trade, trade outside the European Union, and uh, we have no trade agreement, for example, with the United States, and we trade on a very large scale with the United States. We trade, we will continue to trade under WTO terms, And and that's how most of the world's trade is conducted.
0: But, but surely, Lord Lawson, this is going to have a hugely detrimental impact on our economy. Uh, it's going to cause widespread disruption. We've had Matthew Parris on the show who said that no deal is going, going to be disastrous. But you, you disagree with this?
2: Yes, completely. I don't think uh, Matthew Parris, he's the most entertaining journalist, has any great knowledge of economics. Uh, the uh, If we have no deal, how we do economically is going to be dependent on how well we conduct our economic policy, which is a matter for us uh, outside the European Union. I mean, self-government uh, is not uh, a terrible thing, you know. Uh, we gave self-government to huge numbers of uh, countries within the British Empire, Commonwealth, if you like. And uh, it is astonishing, and this was commended, that we uh, gave them self-government. It's very odd that people don't think we're capable of governing ourselves. Uh,
1: Would you you, uh, deny that there would be a lot of disruption, though? I mean, short-term disruption can be uh, a reasonable price to pay for for long-term outcomes that you want. W- would you accept that a no deal would be bad in that sense, at least in the short term? Well, there'd
2: be some disruption, certainly. Uh, but that's not serious. And, of course, don't forget that we would no longer have to pay the massive annual subscription we have to pay to be members of the European Union. That seems to have become forgotten. But it is very substantial. You remember, at the beginning of the Thatcher government, there was a great uh, negotiation. In fact, it started under Labour. It was Jim Callaghan who, to begin with, said that we are paying a quite excessive subscription to to the European Union. And uh, he didn't get anywhere. Margaret Thatcher took up the baton And she did get a rebate uh, agreed, but it's only a partial rebate. We're still net contributors to the rest of the European Union on a large scale. So that has to be offset, not having to continue. That needs to be offset against the short-term disruption.
0: Are you tired of
1: using bulky old wallets that give you a bulge where you don't want it to be? If you are, Ridge wallets are an incredible solution. This is mine. Sleek. Look at the industrial look as well. It's great. You can have 12 cards in it and cash on the back with a clip or strap. They're incredible. We've got one for the whole team. Francis has one. I have one. We even got Anton one. But Anton's from Liverpool, so he flogged on the black market.
0: Absolutely, he did. And it also gives you a lifetime guarantee, which means that you will probably, if
1: you won't, only have one wallet for the rest of your life. The amazing thing about Ridge wallets, they are so confident in their product, and rightly so, that they will give you 45 days to test drive their product. That means you get the wallet, you use it, and if you don't like it, you can return it within 45 days.
0: And because Ridge is such great guys, they're going to give you 10%
1: off and free worldwide shipping and returns. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, go to ridge.com forward slash trigger, that's ridge.com forward slash trigger, and use our code, which it will not surprise you, is also TRIGGER.
0: The EU project, many people have said it's fundamentally doomed because of the inequality between North and South, and particularly the euro. What is your opinion on that?
2: Yeah, well, that's, that, is, that is actually a fundamental uh, point, the European Union. EU is essentially a political project, uh, almost entirely a political project. And it began, uh, the idea began a long time ago uh, with Jean uh, and Then the idea is an economic means to secure a political union. Now, that's fair enough if you want to be part of a political union. But we ended it uh, the time under the misunderstanding that it was just an economic project, in fact, it was called in those days the common market. And mm-hmm. it's progressively the European, the political nature of the European Union, which is not disreputable, but I just don't share it. And the British have never shared it, uh, makes it wrong for this country and unacceptable for this country, which the people of this country uh, decided in the referendum. I remember a long time ago, I knew uh, a leader of the Labour Party who died before he could become Prime Minister, Hugh and He was passionately opposed to British membership of the European communities, I think it was called in those days. On precisely this ground, because it was a political project, not an economic project at all, and a political project which is not
1: what we in this country want to be part of. So, as far as you're concerned, we're heading towards No Deal, uh, and that's fine, and that's where we were going to get to anyway. Well, I
2: I think that because. Uh, sign a deal but it would be a very bad deal that's the only one that uh, our negotiators of the other side of the table uh, will offer us and so I uh, think that we will most likely end with no deal which is better than a bad deal uh, and it's indeed it's the only way that uh, we can secure our freedom and independence, and have a warm and close relationship with them. Uh, No hostility. Uh, We have a warm and close relationship with the United States, but that doesn't mean that we want to be part
0: of the United States. And what what do you see, uh, Lord Lawson, as a future of the euro? Do you think it's ultimately a currency that can survive and thrive, or do you think that it's in its death now?
2: It's certainly not thriving, Uh, but at the moment, of course, all uh, attention is focused on the pandemic. But uh, the euro is certainly not a thriving currency at all. Uh, But um, I think that it creates problems for a number of countries, uh, Italy in particular, in the European Union. And uh, we decided not to join the euro, Mm. which was absolutely right. But, of course, it means we have even less influence uh, on any European Union decisions than other countries Uh, because what happens in the European Union, the way decisions are taken, is that they have a meeting first of the euro group the group of countries in the European Union who have adopted the euro as their currency and they reach a conclusion uh, and once that conclusion is reached that is a majority in the European Council and so we have no influence whatsoever. We've mm. never had a great deal of influence within the European Council but it has greatly diminished almost to zero. Uh, following the uh, coming of the Euro and the Euro Group, which is an inbuilt majority and doesn't need to concern itself with countries should have not adopted uh, the Euro, including the United Kingdom.
0: And Lord Lawson, we are obviously leaving. And, I mean, that has, it's been a palaver, but we're finally leaving the European Union next year. Do you think that's going to be the start of a domino effect with more and more countries leaving the EU? Depends how we
2: conduct ourselves, how successfully. Um, the greater the success of the United Kingdom outside the European Union, um, the more tempting it will be, for the people of other countries to say, well, we might do that. And if we make a mess of things, of course, uh, then uh, it will be uh, less likely that other countries will wish to follow our example. But I very much hope that we won't make a mess of things. There's no reason why we should. Mm. And as I said, uh, we will uh, be free from having to make this massive uh, annual uh, contributions or annual subscription to the European Union coffers.
0: And Lord Lawson, if you look back to that election, or the referendum, I should say, in 2016, and you see all the turmoil that has happened in this country, the arguments, the fact that it's a highly divisive issue, do you still think that having that referendum was the right thing to do for the UK?
2: Absolutely, there's no way we could uh, extract ourselves from the European Union without having a referendum for British people. Uh, It's such a big constitutional matter uh, that it needed referendum. I'm not um, in favour of frequent referendums, Uh, but on this issue that was the only way we could uh, uh, get out. it was uh, ironic that, of course, we would never have uh, had the referendum. Uh, David Cameron would not have uh, held a referendum if he hadn't been convinced that the inns would win. Uh, but that was not the case, fortunately.
1: Mm. Uh, let me ask you a theoretical question, uh, if I may. Uh, taking all of these issues together, the pandemic at the moment, the uh, seeing Brexit through, the economic challenges to do with lockdowns uh, and, and with the pandemic as well, uh, how do you think the government that you were part of, uh, as I said, uh, spearheaded by Margaret Thatcher with you as Chancellor and others, how would you have dealt with, with the current situation that we find ourselves in as a country?
2: Well, if you uh, mean, uh, first of all, dealing with a pandemic, I think that it is um, admittedly very difficult. But I think that we have to uh, get the financial situation, uh, the deficit and the, the debt, too, but the, mainly the deficit, because if you can gradually eliminate the deficit, then the debt burden stops increasing, it's still there but stops increasing and that's crucial I think we'd have to do that and I think we'd have to do it by uh, a form of of rigor or austerity uh, which uh, is in the short term uncomfortable uh, but uh, it is sometimes necessary I don't think that uh, just printing more and more money is a solution. It's building up more problems. And of course, you abandon crazy projects uh, in particular, of which the uh, Green Industrial Revolution, so-called, is the craziest. And if we ever do embark on it, which the government seems determined to do, or at least the Prime Minister seems determined to do, uh, that is... Uh, will be the biggest disaster and will end in tears. But as I say, I hate to do so, I've always been
0: Lord, Lord by nature. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, Lord Lawson, before we do our last question, there was something that, that I wanted to ask you. So I, gr- I grew up in the, uh, I, in the 80s and the, and the 90s. If you look back at your government, what are the things that you were most proud of when you look back at, at the Thatcher government, of the changes that you implemented, things that you did, ways that you moved this country forward? Well, I think the most important thing was
2: turning the economy around. Um, Britain, when we came into office was a basket case, and that's probably why we won the 1979 election. It wasn't because anybody was, I think, swayed by uh, what we were saying. It was just because the economy was in such a mess, with strikes all the time, uh, huge industrial unrest, and uh, an economy which is regarded Uh, with pity, by countries around the world. And we turned it completely around. And at the end, we were regarded as an example of how to conduct uh, economic policy successfully. And uh, that increased our influence considerably. And there were a whole lot of things which were classical uh, economic policy may be, but there are also other things which we were complete innovators and subsequently other countries have copied us, for example privatisation. Nobody had ever heard of privatisation. In fact, there wasn't a word for it uh, when we entered office. Uh, We embarked on a massive privatisation campaign which improved the working of the economy considerably and led to other countries uh, around the world Uh, copying us, following us. And there were um, privatization policies that came in force in most countries of the Western world. And uh, the main thing was the successful conduct of economic policy of the economy uh, and and trade union reform, incidentally, was part of that necessary process. And as I say, we became an example to the rest of the world.
0: And Lord Lawson, on the flip side as well, what were the mistakes that you thought you made in government? Because every government makes mistakes and yours was no different. What were the things looking back that you now go, we got that wrong or we handled that badly?
1: Before Lord Lawson answers, can I just say, Vladimir Putin's government has never made any (laughs) mistakes.
0: Yeah,
2: well, It's not that we never make mistakes, but we forget them or learn from them. But I can't tell you this uh, after this lapse of time uh, which uh, what the mistakes were. Every every government uh, makes mistakes, except, of course, Mr. Putin's. And if you can bother to read my memoirs, uh, Mm. I um, you will find I acknowledge mistakes there in the memoirs, and I genuinely can't remember what they were now. <laughs> plus, plus, <it's, laughs> plus greatly outweighed the minuses.
1: <laughs> how very convenient <laughs> <laughs> that is the
0: best get out of jail free card i've ever heard in my life lord
1: lawson <laughs> uh, Lord Lawson, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show we know you watch the program from time to time and that that is a big honor for us to have you as a guest here before we let you go uh we should of course say everyone should read your memoirs uh but uh Tell us, what is, in your opinion, other than the Green Industrial Revolution, because I feel like you've stuck the boot in on that one pretty hard today, other than that one issue, uh, what is the one thing that no one is talking about that we really should be?
2: Well, i sorry to be a bore, but I think that dwarfs, that eclipses everything else at the present time. Uh, and I am, as I say, I am very concerned Uh Very concerned, Uh, although I have not much longer to live. uh, I'm concerned about this country. And, of course, I have children and grandchildren, so I do care about the future. But uh, I'm sure that if there were anything else, you would have raised it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: your your confidence is extremely misplaced Lord Lawson but we thank you for it nonetheless Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you we hope you at home have enjoyed it as well and we will see you very soon with another brilliant episode
0: take care see you soon guys thank you and bye bye